Well, tonight we're going to focus on another very important topic that relates to the doctrine of salvation, the mercies of God, and in particular, the concept of atonement. And that topic is the topic of propitiation. Propitiation. Now, probably you have not used that word in your vocabulary in the last week or maybe even in the last month. This is a rare word, and you may have never even said it before unless you were reading through 1 John chapter 2 or 1 John chapter 4, Romans chapter 5. It's a rare term. Nonetheless, it is a term of immense importance. And so even though this is a It looks like a complex term, and it may be difficult to pronounce. I don't want that to distract from its importance. Propitiation is a vital doctrine. Now, to, to give you some perspective on how important this is and how this strikes at the heart of the gospel, I want to give you a little bit of history here, some recent history. You all know the song, In Christ Alone, by the Gettys. We sang one of their songs earlier this evening, The Power of the Cross. But this one song, In Christ Alone, written around 2003, I think it was, quickly became one of the most beloved, often sung songs in churches. And in 2013, the mainline Protestant denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, one of the largest mainline denominations in the United States, wanted to add this song, In Christ Alone, to their new hymnal that they were compiling. But they had one condition. The editorial committee requested permission from the song's authors, Stuart Townend and Heath Getty, to alter the lyrics of the second stanza. Now, the the lyrics that they want to change read this way. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that to read as follows. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And you look at that and you say, well, the second or the, the The proposed option doesn't sound unbiblical. We would affirm that. In the cross, the love of God was indeed magnified. But the problem was, was that the editorial committee for the PCUSA was dissatisfied with this simple yet profound phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied. That phrase represents the doctrine of propitiation. Now, Townend and Getty rejected the proposal, and in response, the editorial committee, the committee that was selecting the hymns for the new hymnal, rejected the hymn, and it was not added. And in response, the chair of that hymnal committee, uh, a theologian by the name of Mary Louise Bringle, a teacher of religion, I think is what her profession is, she explained the decision not to include the hymnal in the hymn book as follows. People think that we have taken the wrath of God out of the hymnal. That's not the case. It's all over the hymnal. The issue was with the word satisfied. 
was with the word satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied. So the key issue here is this. Can you use the term wrath and the term satisfied when we talk about what Christ did on the cross? That's the key issue. Do those terms belong together? Wrath of God, satisfaction, and the death of Christ. The PCUSA has said no, and not only them, many, many others, even among those who profess the name of Christ. For example, one Baptist theologian earlier in the 20th century rejected the concept of propitiation and penal substitutionary atonement. And he said this in response. He said, God is free to forgive. The father does not need to punish the son in order to win the right to forgive. Where the father paid off, there would be no forgiveness. God himself forgives. And in so doing, he assumes responsibility for the sinner. Now, in an everyday context, probably the vast majority of Christians today, even those who, are, who would claim to be Bible-believing following Christians, would have no problem with this statement by Frank Stagg, this Baptist theologian. But he gets it wrong because of his understanding of the nature of forgiveness, God's justice and the necessity that wrath must be exercised in response to sin. It is not biblical. It is not right to say, according to the Scriptures, that God can just forgive. He can just forever overlook sin, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist. Now, that is the caricature of many people as they think about who God ought to be, but it is not the God who is perfectly righteous, a God who must respond to sin. So our key question is, do the terms wrath and satisfaction have any relationship to the cross of Jesus Christ? And the answer is a definite yes. It is a theme that runs vividly through the scriptures, and I will even say this tonight, it is essential to the gospel. By way of review, let's remember our bigger category that we are studying. Last week, or the the last session, we introduced the concept of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. And as we pull that apart, let's look at those terms Let's look first at the term atonement. Why is atonement important? Atonement essentially means at one It refers to an action which can bring together a perfectly righteous God and a totally corrupt sinner. How can unrighteousness dwell with righteousness? How can light dwell with darkness? They can't. But atonement refers to the process whereby they are brought into harmony. It is a particular process that must take place in order to make this happen. That process is described as being penal and substitutionary in nature. It is penal in that this at one 
requires the payment of a penalty for the crimes committed. It's penal atonement. It is a, 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 an atonement that occurs because crimes have been paid for. A penalty has been paid for. That's the nature of the atonement. It pays for sin. Sin requires wages. And those wages are death. But the atonement is also substitutionary in that it is not the one who offends who is able to make a satisfactory payment for his sin. The biblical concept of atonement is that it is a substitute who makes the payment on behalf of the offender. That is the Christian gospel. And that is what makes it completely different from any other religious message on the face of this planet. Because in every other religion, in some way, it is the offender who makes atonement for his own sin. He does penance. He pays for it in purgatory. In some way, he makes payment. In some way, he contributes to the process that brings about at one But in the biblical gospel, it is not the sinner who accomplishes at one It is a substitute, one who stands in his place and makes the payment in full. J.I. Packer describes penal substitutionary atonement this way. The notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the divine or the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined, and so won us forgiveness adoption, and glory. Now, let's remember a few of the things that we've talked about when we discussed the doctrine of sin. First of all, let's remember that everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. It is an attack on the moral perfection of God. It is a breaking of his moral law. Secondly, we talked about the fact that all have done this. Every human being is guilty of having been a lawbreaker, save the Lord Jesus Christ. All have sinned, Paul says in Romans 3.23. Moreover, Romans 6.23 says that there is a penalty for lawbreaking. A penalty must be paid, and that penalty is known as death. And then as Ephesians 2 verse 3 also reminds us of, all human beings, therefore, because of their nature as being lawbreakers, are therefore called children of wrath. Every every human being is born a child of wrath because of that sin Nature and every human being bears that out in how they live their lives. Wicked thoughts, evil deeds prove that they are worthy only of wrath. Therefore, when theologians and 
hymn book committees deny the concept of penal substitutionary atonement or this concept that we're going to define tonight as propitiation. It comes ultimately from an errant understanding of sin. You see, when a biblical understanding of sin is absent, serious errors in understanding the doctrine of salvation are inevitable. If you get the doctrine of sin wrong, you will get wrong the doctrine of salvation. And you will reject things like penal substitutionary atonement. You will reject things like propitiation. It comes back to this very important doctrine of sin. Some of you may follow the Babylon Bee. There was this caption recently, of course, this, uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of a, a sarcastic uh, depiction of how people view their sin. But I thought, you know, this is not, uh, th- th- this is uh, not satire. This is reality, right? So you look at this relative badness of sin, sins that I struggle with, that's the green bar, really not that bad. And on a level of repulsiveness, of sin before a holy God in relative units of disgustingness, it ranks about a one. But the sins of other people ranks about a one million, and their sin is really bad. Now, this makes this look funny, but we all can identify with this. This is exactly what happens in the religions of the world today. This is exactly what happens on a very personal level as people either reject the gospel uh, or deny the gospel or try to, to refute the gospel. It comes down to this idea that my sin is not really that bad. Therefore, if Christ died for me, it certainly didn't involve wrath. He was simply putting on a good display of love for me. That is how, how a, a whole lot of people look at the cross of Christ. But let's look at now at some of the key terms and definitions related to this particular topic. First of all, we're going to look at divine wrath. Secondly, the topic of propitiation. And then another one, expiation. Let's look at these three terms right now. First of all, we have to consider divine wrath. We have to review this. We have to properly define what this attribute means when we talk about the wrath of God. Some of you may remember back in April of 2017, we did a series on in the year 2016 to 2017, a series on the attributes of God. And in April of that year, we talked about the concept of divine wrath. And I gave this definition in that study. The wrath of God refers to his righteous response to everything that is contrary to his divine perfection. He cannot approve of or remain indifferent to that which challenges his character, but must actively respond with all of his person to judge evil. It's a very important concept to remember as we talk about the cross. God cannot remain indifferent to that which challenges his character. He cannot remain indifferent to that which is contrary to who he is, because the moment he does that, is the moment he ceases being a perfect God. He then becomes a God who allows or simply ignores unrighteousness. He then becomes a God who is imperfect and even a God who approves of that which is contrary 
to perfect righteousness. One writer defined it even more simply. The wrath of God is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. You see, those who deny penal substitutionary atonement and the concept of propitiation, as we're going to look at it here in just a minute, they deny that what happened to Jesus on the cross had anything to do with divine wrath. For example, one pastor, one Presbyterian pastor who agreed with the decision to reject the hymn in Christ alone said this in response to the the decision. He said that lyric from in Christ alone comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. He misunderstood the cross and he misunderstood his own sin. To them, the cross only becomes a symbol of great sacrificial, unconditional love. But in the end, sin doesn't really need payment. It only needs a declaration of forgiveness. And so for them, the popular refrain is, my sin is really not that bad so as to merit wrath. Think about that. Whenever you say that Jesus did not have to bear the wrath for your sin, you are saying that you did not commit sin that was worthy of wrath. You did not commit anything that was contrary to the pure righteous character, the perfect righteousness of God. That is what you are saying. And and we could say this then, that the biggest cause for a misunderstanding in the gospel, a misunderstanding of the atonement, a misunderstanding of the cross, is an ignorance and a misunderstanding of God and his perfections. Essentially, especially here, we misunderstand the wrath of God. We deny it or ignore it or downplay it. Because again, to us, sin is not really that bad. On a scale of repulsiveness, it ranks only a one out of a million. And that goes to show how much sin has deceived us. And we have deceived ourselves. The second term here is the term propitiation. Now we get to the heart of our discussion tonight. What does propitiation mean? Some of you are saying, again, I've never said that word before, and it's hard to say. I I give you this, this counsel, just... You know, when you're shaving in the morning, just keep saying it over and over again. Propitiation, propitiation, propitiation. When your wife asks you what you're thinking about, you know, that question. What are you thinking about, right? And we would often say nothing. Don't say nothing. Say, I'm thinking about propitiation. See what she says. It might be a better answer. (laughs) Propitiation. It's a very important concept. What does it mean? Wayne Grudem defines it this way. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. That's a great definition. It is a sacrifice. Propitiation is a sacrifice, first of all, that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, secondly, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. So the key idea 
of this doctrine, which we call propitiation, the key idea is the satisfaction of God's wrath and the acquisition of his favor. Think of it in that term, propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath over your sin and the acquisition of his favor for you. That's what propitiation is. That's what Christ accomplished on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for the sin of believers to the end. He drank the cup to its last drop so that no more tiny element of God's wrath even remained. And by doing so, he acquired for you God's favor. So understand this. This is a very important concept. Before the atonement could be applied to us and our relationship to God, it first had to impact God and his relationship to us. Now that is, again, what most people object to. Their presupposition is that even in their unbelieving state as a sinner, God is not wrathful towards them. He just is, is, he has no judgment upon them. He tolerates all of their sin and wickedness, every evil deed, every bitter thought. He just accepts all of that for who they are. No wrath. So there's no change that needs to happen in the relationship of a holy God to a sinner. God just loves them. But when we see the cross and we see the biblical teaching related to it, and when we understand what it means to be a child of wrath, it means that apart from the cross of Christ, there is a problem in the relationship between God and man. And the problem isn't just that I am at enmity with God. God, by virtue of his righteousness, must be at enmity with the sinner. He must be. Because if he is not, he fails to be perfect in his righteousness. So when we talk about the atonement and we talk about this concept, what we're talking about is that first of all, before the atonement was ever applied to you as a believer, before the benefits of Christ's death were realized by you, they first impacted the relationship that God has to you. Before the atonement could be applied to us, it first had to impact God and his relationship to us as sinners. God must remain true to himself, to his righteousness in response to our sin, even as he expresses his love. And that is what we call propitiation. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of propitiation, where do we find it in scripture? I'll give you a quick summary right now, and we'll come back to it near the end of our time tonight. First of all, the concept of propitiation finds its basis in the Old Testament 
sacrificial system, and particularly in Isaiah 53. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you would read of the sacrifices being offered and how it was a pleasing aroma in God's nostrils, speaking in anthropomorphic terminology there, to show that it was satisfying to God. That's where it comes from. And in particularly Isaiah 53 and a few verses here, let me just highlight them. Verse 5. He, that is the suffering servant, was pierced through for our transgressions. Now you have to ask the question, who pierced him? The concept here is that God did. He was crushed for our iniquities. Who crushed him? God did. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. And then you read a few verses later in verse 11, and this is so precious. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says this, As a result of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of the suffering servant's soul, he that is, the Lord, will see it and be satisfied. And be satisfied. That's the concept of the propitiation, the doctrine of propitiation. Finds its roots there in the Old Testament sacrificial system. We could spend a lot of time on that, but you get the picture. Now, let me transition to the next sub-point here. The actual language of propitiation is derived from the New Testament, and particularly a a set of Greek terms, hilaskomai, hilasmos, and hilasterion. You don't need to remember those. But this is where our English word propitiation comes from, from a translation of these Greek terms. And we find these in four texts of the New Testament in particular. Romans 3 verse 25 When Paul writes, whom, that is, Jesus Christ, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we find uh, that same root term. When the writer says, therefore, he, that is, Jesus, had had to be made like his brethren in all things to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In 1 John 2, verse 2, we read that he himself, that is Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And in 1 John 4, verse 10, we read that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that term propitiation emphasizes the fact that a penalty is being paid, a wrath The wrath of God is being satisfied in the sacrifice. That's why God sent his son. Like what Thomas Cranmer said, the English reformer, he said this, It pleased our heavenly father of his infinite mercy, without any of our desert or deserving, to prepare for us the most precious jewels of Christ's body and blood, whereby our ransom might be fully paid, the law fulfilled, and his justice fully 
satisfied. That is the cross of Christ. And so when we talk about propitiation, we must understand that propitiation satisfies the necessary wrath of God against sinners and allows the benefits of his mercy to be poured upon them. Now, to affirm that is to put yourself immediately on the front lines of theological fire. This is not a popular concept, and in fact would get you expelled even from many Christian circles. For many, the concept of penal substitutionary atonement is bad enough, but once you start talking about propitiation in particular, it evokes an intolerance. Certainly from every religion outside of Christianity, but even from professing Christians themselves. Now, a case in point can be seen even in the translation of Romans 3, verse 25. Now, I'm going to show you several translations here of Romans 3, 25. I read it to you just a moment ago when I said that God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, here is a list of several of the most popular, respected translations. I read to you already from the NASB. It uses the term propitiation. The ESV uses the term propitiation. The Holman Christian Standard Bible uses the term propitiation. The King James Version uses the term propitiation. Now, when you get into the NIV, they change it and And I think that is because they're just trying to make it really simple for people to read. So it's hard to tell there with what they are getting at by simply saying a sacrifice of atonement. It's nondescript. In a way, they're taking the easy way out there with that term. But it's the RSV that explicitly rejects the concept of propitiation. And its translators and editors decided instead to go with the word expiation. Now, you might be saying, what's the difference? They both sound pretty serious in, in their substance. We don't use these terms much. What's the difference between propitiation and expiation? And can't we use these terms interchangeably? And who cares? Well, in something like this, there actually is a great deal of difference. Let me define expiation. It's our third term. What does expiation mean? means the removal of guilt or stain of sin through payment of a penalty. You might say, well, what's wrong with that? It sounds like what happened at the cross. And in saying that, you're right. There was the removal of guilt. There was the removal of the stain of sin. What's the big deal then with how the RSV translates that text? Here's the problem. Expiation does not say anything about the relationship of God to sin and the sinner. Expiation is certainly part of what happened at the cross, but it does not go far enough because it specifically ignores the concept of the wrath of God and its satisfaction. It leaves that out of the equation. 
It acknowledges the fact that we are sinners. It acknowledges the fact, expiation does, that we have a stain. And it says that what happened at the cross is simply that the stain was removed. The guilt was removed. But again, that does not go far enough. Because in the biblical teaching, it is not just a removal of the stain of sin. The cross does not represent the removal only of guilt. The cross represents a fundamental change in the attitude of God to the sinner. Let me put it in these terms. Propitiation is a work that is directed toward God. When Christ propitiated, he did so towards God. Expiation is directed towards our sin. Secondly, propitiation deals with a change of attitude, a change of attitude of God towards us because of what was done. Expiation simply deals with the change of the status of the sinner. Propitiation emphasizes the satisfaction of God's wrath. Expiation only discusses the removal of guilt. You might not see much of a difference there, but when you stop and you think of it, there is a large difference. Again, let me quote J.I. Packer. He said this, The difference is that expiation means only half of what propitiation means. Let me stop there for just a moment and say this, that in neglecting the concept of propitiation, you only have half the gospel. Come back to J.I. Packer here. The difference is that expiation means only half of what propitiation means. Expiation is an action that has sin as its object. It denotes the covering, putting away, or rubbing out of sin so that it no longer constitutes a barrier to friendly fellowship between man and God. Propitiation, however, in the Bible, denotes all that expiation means as well as the act of pacifying the wrath of God thereby. So if we would look at it this way, see the atonement as a coin. On the one side, you certainly do have expiation. On the one side of the coin, you do have the removal of sin. But on the other side, you must have the satisfaction of God's wrath. These two must be part of our understanding of the atonement. The removal of the stain of sin on our behalf and on our part, as well as the satisfaction of God's wrath on God's part. That is the biblical definition of the atonement. Now, in your notes, I have some essential characteristics described here. I'm going to go through these really quickly. You can read them in your notes, but let me give you five essential characteristics here of propitiation. As you understand it a little bit better, number one, it is the initiative of the Father's will. In 1 John 4 verse 8 to 10, where we have that term propitiation mentioned, John says clearly that it is God who sent forth his son to be the propitiation. In other words, from start to finish, the atonement and propitiation in particular 
is the initiative of God the Father. In other words, it is wrong when you think of propitiation to think of the father as some cruel tyrant and the son comes along to bribe the father. That is not the biblical concept of atonement. It was the father's initiative to enact this plan so that his wrath would be satisfied and his favor could be poured out. Secondly, It is the ambition of the Son's incarnation. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we read that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, referring to his incarnation. Why? So that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And then we have the climax here, the ultimate purpose, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus came. He came He was incarnated. The Son of God was incarnated for this very reason. You see, the Son did not suffer the wrath of God and die unwillingly. It was his goal from the very beginning, and he was fully aware of what was involved. Jesus himself said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his own life as a ransom for many. Third, it is the demonstration of pure righteousness. If we would go to Romans 3, 21 to 26, we would read that Jesus was publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood in order to demonstrate the righteousness of God. This was to demonstrate that God would remain just. The cross was intended to show that God would not ignore his righteousness that sin would receive its full penalty, the, the, the full bearing of his wrath. And of course, if we look at the life of Christ, we see this righteousness on display as it first began in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus now began to, to experience the wrath of God poured out upon him. And it's interesting to note this, that before the Garden of Gethsemane, we never read of Jesus fearing anything. Nothing. He could stand before the high priest. He could stand before Pontius Pilate. He could stand before whomever leader at whatever time it was before the garden. And he was not fearful. When he gets to the garden, as Luther said, never a man feared death like this man. He knew what was coming. He knew the wrath that he would have to bear. He began to sweat drops of blood. That display of righteousness then was climaxed on the cross. As he hung there, nailed to that wood, we hear the most frightening words that we could ever imagine coming from Jesus as he, this perfect, spotless Lamb of God says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are some of the most profound words we will ever read spoken by the lips of Jesus. Who can understand them? You see, it was at that moment when Jesus in his humanity was bearing the brunt of the payment for the sins of those 
who would believe. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, he felt the wrath for them on your behalf. And it was a bloody, violent execution. And that's not because God is some tyrant. It is because your sin is so hideous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him, God made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, not to, to sin, not to commit sin, but to bear the penalty for sin on our behalf. And in that moment, as he lay uh, hung dying on that wood, he experienced an infinite wrath for each and every single sin of everyone who would ever believe. It culminated in those words as he brought it to a close, as he finished it, as he drank the last drop. He said, it is finished. That leads us to the fourth characteristic. It is a manifestation of incomparable love. You see, divine wrath and divine love are not antithetical. Both are found in full display in the cross. In fact, in 1 John 4, verse 8 to 10, John defines for us the epitome of love. What is love? And John says, this is love. That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John Murray describes it this way. He says, the doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of this wrath. And then fifth, the fifth characteristic of Propitiation is that it is and continues to be the foundation for ongoing intercession. In 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2, we read this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father. His name's Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And that's not to say that Jesus somehow is continuing his sacrifice today at the right hand of God the Father. That is not what that text means. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it was done. But Jesus Christ today, because he has instituted a context of peace for those who would believe, he is at the right hand of the Father, continuing to work out all of the fruit of his completed atonement. And that means that even today, for believers who find themselves in sin, they have no need to fear the wrath of God because Jesus intercedes for them and says, I paid for it in full. He is that intercessor, that great high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And because he does, because he is there bearing the fruit of his finished atonement, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. 
And what are some practical implications as we close? Number one, make much of Christ. Make much of Christ. What Christ did for us on the cross, men, should inspire our most profound and humble worship. It should inspire our greatest thoughts. This is represented in one hymn. I want to read it. It's called Substitution. Its language is so profound. Let me read this. The writer Anne Ross Cousin wrote this. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. Death and curse were in our cup, O Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, now blessings draught for me. Jehovah lifted up his rod, O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore, stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. The tempest's awful voice was heard. O Christ, it broke on thee. Thy open bosom was my ward. It braved the storm for me. Thy form was scarred. Thy visage marred. Now cloudless peace for me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, the flaming blade, must slake. Thy heart, its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. The Holy One did hide his face. O Christ, t'was hid from thee. Dumb darkness wrapped thy soul a space, the darkness due to me. But now that face of radiant grace shines forth in light on me. For me, Lord Jesus, thou hast died, and I have died in thee. Thou art risen, my bands are all untied, and now thou livest in me. When purified, made white, and tried, Thy glory then for me. That is awesome language. That is what human language was created for. With Christ and his propitiatory work at its center and all of the blessings that flow for us. Make much of Christ. Secondly, be happy. Be happy. If you are in Christ, you must know that Christ has drank the the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. There isn't a single drop that remains for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10 says that because of this, we are not destined for wrath. You see, for those who are in Christ, the wheels of divine justice stopped turning 2,000 years ago. And they are silent. And against you, those wheels will never turn again. Why? Christ. 
be happy. We ought to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. After all, that's what the euangelion means. That's what the good news means. It's mean, it means that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, love generously. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says, Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up as an aroma, a sacrifice to God. Christians who can't love others misunderstand the atonement. They misunderstand propitiation. Love others generously. Fourth, preach Christ crucified. Preach Christ crucified. Crucified, Paul said, they determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And the last phrase makes all the difference. And him crucified. It's not just enough to talk about how great Jesus' love is for us. It is great. We must talk about the reality of the crucifixion. One writer said this of mainline Christianity. And this describes so much of those who call themselves Christians. It is a God without wrath. Brought, who brought man without sin into a kingdom, without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's not the biblical gospel. And fifth, finally, let me address those of you here tonight who are not in Christ. And I will say this because I love you and I must. If you are not reconciled to Christ, you better not sleep tonight. You better not, because the wrath still remains for you. Acts 17, Paul is in front of the the Areopagus, and he says to them that God has fixed a day in which he will judge through one man, Jesus Christ. And I want to say this to you, if Christ did not bear the wrath you deserved, then you must. And unlike Christ, who was able to bear the wrath of those who believe sufficiently and perfectly, you will never reach the end. It is an eternity of paying the penalty. So in light of that, I beg you, don't sleep tonight. Be reconciled to God, or that wrath will remain on you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel, a gospel that did not not obscure your righteousness, but a gospel that puts both your righteousness on your and your justice on beautiful display. So our feeble attempt to give thanksgiving comes down to one simple phrase. Jesus, thank you.